If you take your seats, please turn in your Bible with me to Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Picking up where we, picked, where we left off even this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul continues his argument against the Judaizers, against the Galatians, really, who have fallen under the spell of the Judaizers. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Opponents of the gospel of grace are out there. All the religions of the world, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Mormons, good old secular humanists, I would argue even further, even Roman Catholics, though they will sign joint declarations on justification by faith with Lutherans or with evangelicals, they will not put that word at the end, justified by faith alone. And no doubt some of our favorite political commentators or podcasters or writers either do not understand this central tenet of Christianity or think it's silly or a liability at the very best. No doubt out there, especially, or basically everyone, says the way of personal growth, of spiritual growth, is a combination, it's a recipe of self-discipline, self-motivation, effort, and execution. Discipline, motivation, effort, and execution. Just do it. Stop making excuses. Be the change you wish to see. And indeed, this gospel of do-it-yourself-ism is a false gospel. And it can be effective. It can be effective whether you're trying to lose weight, whether you're trying to modify your behavior in one way or another, whether you're trying to achieve your goals, whether you're trying to be successful in general. But here, as the Bible teaches, justifying yourself by works, making yourself right with existence by effort, while it might bring you lots of worldly wealth and success, can still send you straight to hell. It is man's gospel. This is in contrast and antithesis to God's gospel, as Paul has been explaining in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. But further, the problem is not only that the... Uh, the opponents of the gospel are out there, outside the church, but that are often also within the church. The singular most popular book among Christian women, even in the evangelical world in the last five years, is Rachel Hollis's Girl, Wash Your Face. It's a New York Times bestseller full of funny and heart-wrenching anecdotes with empowering messages, but the overall message is clear. Girl, stop making excuses. Just do it. Pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and get it done. 
Make yourself happy. 2018, it was the second most popular book in all of the website of Amazon. Not just in Christian books for women, but in all of Amazon, the number two bestseller in 2018. But even if you aren't um, you know, counting pop evangelical hits, now the fundamentalism of previous generations, even among conservative Christians, is still loud in our memories. So we, we knew how, how easy it can be to add unbiblical barriers to membership or to fellowship, whether that be alcohol or where you send your kid to school or what kind of clothes you wear, perhaps. We might affirm justification by faith alone, but other things can work their ways in to be unbiblical barriers to fellowship within the church. And of course, it's always been out there and it's always been in here in the church because it's always ultimately in here. It's in the heart of every man, woman, and child. It's our default operating system. It's our, the way of natural man is to follow man's gospel. May of man's doing it. Do it yourself-ism. And it's this very thing that Paul is arguing against in our first three chapters here. And he, he doesn't slow down in his argument against it. As we come to chapter 3, it's rapid-fire missiles, one after the other. Each comes as a rhetorical question that's meant to penetrate and explode his opponents. And so we'll work through what I think is, you know, whether you're counting five or six arguments in these five verses, the beginning of chapter 3, each meant to show the inconsistency, the, the unthinkability of, of going with man's gospel of do-it-yourselfism, justification by works, over against God's gospel of grace and faith, the power of the Spirit. Now the first argument I, I think we see is right there in verse 1a. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now I'll, I'll call this an argument from shame. An argument from shame. Of course, in some ways, this picks up the tone that's already been here in the text. The tone was there in chapter 1, verse 6. He comes at him fresh and hard. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of the gospel. That is, that there is an urgency uh, and a displeasure. Uh, there is a, 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 a scratch in his headness to what he's saying here. And perhaps for many of us, uh, it's rather odd to hear the gospel or the, the apostle, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit use uh, shaming words or even name-calling. You fools, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And no day now in, in our, our therapeutic age, we are sensitive to anything that you know, might hurt one's self-esteem. And yet, uh, it's not uh, unusual in the Bible for this very thing to happen. Jesus himself, Matthew 23, 27, says, Woe to you, Pharisees and teachers of the law, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. And Paul here, he speaks like a man to men. He speaks like a coach to his players. He speaks like a father to his sons. Uh, no doubt that shame can be a crushing thing. Shame, uh, when it's overused, can be abusive, certainly in certain ways. But there's also... A rightful shame and a rightful use of it from one who has rightful authority. If your son, you know, hits his sister, as he shouldn't, and he's not feeling the remorse he should, if he's not feeling the shame he should, sometimes it's your job as a father to help him feel the shame of that act. 
Similarly, as a coach, you know, you, your team out there, uh, it's evident on the game tape, they're not giving the effort on the field that they should be, and they're watching the, ga the, the game with you, and they're not, they're not sensing the shame they should be. There's something that, of that here. Shame from the rightful authority might be appropriate, especially if there is a rightful, loving relationship, as I think is here true with Paul and the Galatians. My football coach in college, Coach Swider, would often say that rules without relationship equals rebellion. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. I think of this also with Dr. Johnson's parenting advice he often gives. You want both high affection and high standards to our children. You know, a low affection with high standards is a, is a recipe for crushing guilt and shame. High affection with low standards is deflating to the whole of life, but High affection, high standards, a high level of relational uh, capital, of investment, of, of known love can allow you to say hard things in certain ways. And I think that's what we're seeing Paul do here. This first argument he makes isn't so much uh, rational or principial or even theological. It's personal. Paul was their founding pastor, and this is, a, in a sense, a, a personal betrayal of what he taught them, what he fed them, what he, what he grew them up in. And it's a, it's a mistake that puts the whole church in not just mortal danger, but eternal danger. And indeed, it is foolish to turn your way from the gospel of God into the gospel of man. Paul isn't afraid to wonder out loud at their bewitchment. How is it possible they came under the spells of the false teachers? How the heretics came in and divided the church? Indeed, within the last century... Liberals have overtaken our churches, denominations, schools, universities, seminaries. It's wild, uh, mind-numbing to think uh, how within a generation a, a church founded upon the gospel of God can be flipped to be declaring and standing for the opposite of it. And Paul's first argument is in this line. It's personal. It's a rightful shaming of a loving pastor to his congregation. They've gone the way of the fool. He is speaking with urgency to get their attention. He has more to say them, to them as well. So his first argument, we say it might be an, an argument from shame. His second argument is right there in verse 1b. We'll call it, call it an, an argument from the experience of the beginning. An argument from the experience of the beginning. Paul says in 1b, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Remember that Paul was there when the Christians he's arguing with became Christians. He, he was the one doing the preaching. He was doing the most ordinary of things. I mean, he speaks, as it were, in a poetic way, before your eyes. You might say, the eyes of your heart, because Paul wasn't up there putting on a song and dance for them. He wasn't play-acting the crucifixion. He, he wasn't putting a movie or TV show on for him. He was proclaiming, the, the word here for portrayed could also be placarded or even proclaimed before your eyes. I saw you eye to eye. I looked you in the eyes. I told you the truth of a God who came down. The Logos made flesh, the unthinkable, the incarnate God who came down and walked among us, who became our high priest, who was abused and beaten and flogged and crucified, taken on the full wrath of God, drinking it drowned to the dregs, the wrath of God that we might go free. You saw it with your eyes. You believed it with your ears. That's what he's saying. Remember back to that first experience. How did you start? How did we start as a church? Was it because I came to you with a list of do's and don'ts? 
What is it? How can I, did we get started your experience as a Christian because I, I gave you a, um, a bunch of how-tos and whatnots, incantations and, and ways to get ahead? I didn't tell you what you had to do. I told you about what Christ had done. Paul's pointing out to them their experience. They didn't begin by doing, working, law-keeping, but they started by faith alone, hearing and believing. Being a part of God's people can start with do, uh, can't start with doing, because as you know from your own experience, it starts with hearing and believing. This is his second argument. His first argument, an argument from shame. Second argument, an argument from their experience of beginning. And thirdly, you might call it an argument from their experience of continuing. Their experience of continuing in the Spirit. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The Spirit that brings you along, that continues you in the faith. Did the Holy Spirit come to you after you had done the rain dance and gotten the Holy Spirit to, to show up? Did the Holy Spirit come to you uh, like, like uh, the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and they worked themselves up into a frenzy and sliced themselves all up and the fire came from heaven to them? No, that's not the way it came to you. Did the Holy Spirit come to you after you read your Bible for the tenth time through? Is that when you, when you leveled up spiritually and things started really going for you? Did you level up spiritually? the Spirit come when you finally had the circumcision done? That's what, that's what really brought the Holy Spirit into your life. Now, the question is rhetorical. It ought to be obvious to us and to them. Paul's explaining just in the verses preceding our text, as we discussed this morning, that the hour we first believe, what happens to us? Not only that we're justified, but that ultimately we're united to Christ. United to Christ by the Spirit. We begin and continue on by the ministry of the Holy Spirit connecting us to Christ. As John Murray in his famous book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, so helpfully sets out, Christ accomplishes the redemption, as Terry says, long ago and far away. Now, how does that which was done long ago and far away, 2,000 years or so ago, come to us? By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, outside time, is able to apply that redemption accomplished by Christ to us. When we have the supper, as we're about to, we say we believe in a spiritual presence. That is that Christ is not carnally or corporally present in the bread or in the wine, uh, nor do we say this is just a memorial, but that the Holy Spirit is mediating and communicating the benefits of Christ by faith when we have the supper together. So Paul is saying here, the Spirit came on you all, the good fruit of the Spirit came from your lives, not by works, but by faith. You weren't full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., because you worked yourself up to it by good behavior and by keeping a schedule and by discipline and execution. No, good fruit that comes from the heart, comes from the overflow of the love of God, the Holy Spirit pours into it, Romans 5. It's by faith. Argument one, Paul says, is an argument from shame. Secondly, an argument from the experience of beginning. Thirdly, an argument from the experience of continuing and Holy Spirit growth. And fourthly, his uh, argument's found there in verse 3. We might say an argument from inconsistency. Verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Paul implies that this would be wildly inconsistent. To somehow begin by grace, but to finish by works. You know, all the problems that we've spoke about a few weeks ago of, of justification by works would be there as you attempted to keep up your justification by works. The internal problem of pride by having success at law-keeping would be there to nag. Or the internal problem of shame would be there if you weren't able to so well keep up your law-keeping. And of course, the social problem of division would immediately come in to the gospel people. What might have seemed like a grace, faith, spirit religion would just become good old do-it-yourselfism if you started by the spirit and ended by the flesh. What would have been a, a, the unique, powerful, wonderful, biblical religion becomes like every other religion in the world. Do-it-yourself-ism. No, no, Paul explains. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Salvation is by grace from start to finish. Not only your justification, but also your sanctification. Any true sanctification, any true growth in holiness and growth in the spirit doesn't end in pride. It must end in humility. And to end in humility, you must be pointing to the Holy Spirit's help. If it was you who did it, you who really grow. I, I've been growing in love like crazy recently, and you know, I'm, I'm feeling rather good about that, that, that is detrimental to the whole thing. I am growing in love only by the work of the Spirit in my life. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The argument Paul was making because of our union with him. And this is truly, uh, you might say, and even another level of good news. Any young man fighting addiction to pornography, anyone fighting alcohol or drug addiction, knows that they fail on their own. It would be the worst of news to somehow start in grace and end by the flesh or be perfected by the works of the flesh. Uh, the 12-step programs, they all acknowledge the first step. You have to acknowledge a deity. There has to be an external help. There has to be a power outside yourself that brings you along. But the Spirit of God, all-powerful, ever-present, with Him by faith, with him, there's freedom. There is progress. There is growth. Um, Dr. Timothy Keller, the famous pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, recently passed. And his sermon on this text explains that you know, it, can be, it can feel rather silly trying to explain to someone, a skeptic, about uh, you know, why they should come to Christ. And you're saying, well, and if you believe in Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean anything to them, right? Uh, what good is that? And indeed, we often can feel the same way. Like, yeah, I got, I got the Holy Spirit, you know, thanks a lot. Dr. Keller um, likens our experience of having the Holy Spirit as Christians to um, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings trilogy when Frodo is wearing the fam famous mithril chainmail armor underneath his jacket. And he's been given it to him by his uncle Bilbo. And Frodo doesn't really know the story behind it. He's wearing it as he's going on with Gimli and Legolas, and they're, you know, on the Fellowship of the Ring. And uh, Frodo overhears Gandalf explaining to Gimli that he thought Bilbo had this mithril chainmail coat that he hadn't seen anywhere. And uh, Gandalf explains the worth of it. He says it's worth ten times more than that of gold. And now it is beyond price. It's so rare, Gandalf says to Gimli. It's of greater worth than the whole shire and everything in it. Tolkien explains that Bilbo, sorry, Frodo, Frodo felt staggered to think 
he had been walking about with the price of the whole shire under his jacket. Such is the life of the Christian. What we have in the Holy Spirit, we can't even begin to penetrate the deep worth and power of when we know that we're Holy Spirit empowered. It's an untapped resource, no, no doubt, in each of our lives. So that Christ is in us, mediated to us by his Spirit at all times. Paul argues it would be wildly inconsistent to think we began by spirit power and ended by flesh. So that we see this first, this uh, argument from shame. Secondly, an argument by the experience of beginning. Thirdly, an experience of continuing. Fourthly, the inconsistency of it makes it unthinkable. And fifthly, you may see here a, an argument, I would say, from God's providence in verse 4. God's providence. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, did you suffer, or as the ESV footnotes, that word can be experienced. Did you experience or suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And the question might follow up, but does the believer ever experience or suffer anything in vain? Anything that is truly meaningless to your life? Does the Lord deal with us in that way? Things happen to us, you know, you, know, you, you believed and you had this experience and you were following the Lord and we started the church, but that was all meaningless. You had to get to the real, the hardcore stuff, the Old Testament stuff where you, you, know, you keep the law, the ceremonial thing, and that's really the deeper way. No, nothing in the believer's life is meaningless. Nothing is suffered or experienced in vain. You know, the, the bedrock text of Christian discipleship, we might say, Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good. All things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In, in case the Galatians wanted to dismiss their early Christian experience and go on to those deep and old things of the Old Testament, Paul is saying No. Your experience of grace and faith and spirit power were not in vain nor meaningless, but ought to teach you to keep away from these false teachers. You know the truth. You tasted the truth with your own lips. Not in vain, Paul says, that you heard and believed. Not in vain that the spirit transformed lives. Not in vain that we started this church in Galatia in dependence on the spirit by faith. The world around us basically treats everything as if it's meaningless. Um, the whole world is your canvas on which to draw or create your own meaning for yourself. Whether it be your body, your skin, your house, clothes, car, it's all about your self-expression, bringing meaning to what is otherwise you know, just out there. You get to pick your pronouns, as it were. But the biblical worldview stands in antithesis to this. This is my Father's world. It's made by His design and His intention. And anything that's ever understood truly, any true meaning we might bring to any piece of His creation is only ever stood as it comes to relation in Him. In Him who made it and has an ends for it. Galatians, you can't reimagine your own experience. God is providential over all things. Nothing here is an accident. Nothing's meaningless. Nothing is in vain in your life. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Whatever my God ordains is right. You started in grace through faith, not by works. Paul points to shame. He points to their beginning, their continuing, their inconsistency, the providence of God. And then briefly here, he has an argument from God's works of redemption. Look at verse 5. Does he, that is God, 
who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. And of course, in verse 6, I'll go on. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this is the argument we'll pick up next week as he rhetorically asks this question, this profound theological question of how does God work? By work doing on our part or by believing by faith? And here he points to his first example, Abraham, in verses 6 through 14, as we pick up next time, he'll make his argument in a larger way that God is always, only, ever worked by faith alone. This is who he is, it's what he does. We might say that the writer of the Hebrews makes the same argument in Hebrews 11, the hall of those who worked out their salvation on their own. No, the hall of faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, David. Such is the refrain of the Old Testament. And no doubt on some level, you know, we might say God does bless obedient children, but the, the works of redemption, the election of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel as a nation, David, his choosing, his saving, his giving is by faith and grace and the power of the Spirit. I, I do think that contrast in 1 Kings 19 between the prophets of Baal working themselves up to a frenzy, working and trying to get the incantation to work for them so that fire comes from heaven, Contrasted with Elijah, who believes and prays, that's the contrast meant to be seen here. How does God work? By works or by faith? Or at Pentecost? Uh, are the apostles out there, you know, proving their work? Are they out there evangelizing? Well, they're out there preaching? No, 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 no. The way fire comes from heaven, the work of redemption comes at Pentecost, is a bunch of men in fear praying by faith as the Lord comes upon them. Jesus explains the way of his Holy Spirit in John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Paul's point, God always has worked by faith alone. The opponents of the gospel out there are manifold and never die. The confusion about the gospel in the church will always be among us. And the confusion in our hearts is something we always need to be rooting out and fighting against. And Paul here in these six brief arguments has given us some ammunition to argue to ourselves with, argue to the world with, argue within the church with. God has always worked by faith alone. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. By grace I have made it thus far, and grace will lead me home. Newton had it right. It begins with God, it ends with God, and it's all by His grace through the middle. Lord, not tis I that choose you. Lord, I know that could never be, for this heart would still refuse you had your grace not chosen me. You removed the sin that stained me, cleansing me to be your own, and for this purpose you ordained me, that I live for you alone. It was grace in Christ that called me, taught my darkened heart and mind, else the world had yet enthralled me to your heavenly glories blind. Now I worship none above you, for your grace alone I thirst, knowing well that if I love you, O Father, you love me first. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we might never be caught being sucked into the do-it-yourselfism, to man's gospel, that we might enjoy and grow in the power of the Spirit into understanding and appreciating ever, ever afresh 
the gospel of God, the way he's made for us in Christ. Father, I pray that we'd walk in your way, that you'd sanctify your people in our church, that we would be holy even as you are holy, that we uh, would not uh, allow sin or the devil or his demons to have a foothold in any of our lives, that we would be active in our own personal and as a church, the spiritual battles that are ever among us. Father, we pray for our missionaries we send. We pray for the church planners we support. We pray for the RUFs, the ministers and the interns. Father, all those who need your spirit to empower them. May they believe, Father, and may you supply them by their faith, the power of the spirit. Father, we pray for the sick and suffering among us. Many, many, O oh Lord, who need your healing hand and need your presence. We pray for your comfort to be with the Matthews family in the passing of Brooke's mother, and with the Morris family in the passing of Peg, and the Lafitte family in the passing of Caroline's grandmother. We pray for Ed Forrester as he recovers, for the McLaurins, especially for Betty as she recovers. We pray for Elizabeth Garnett. Pray for uh, Jack Monroe, who's been in the hospital, sweet baby Jack. Pray for John Toller, who fell and is in need of your healing hand and the wisdom of the doctors. We pray for Steve Brunson, for Chuck Moore and Caroline Hodges, for Med James as he continues his cancer treatments. Oh, Lord, your sheep need you. May they know your presence. You know your sheep by name, everyone here and who's known and unknown, Father. May you heal and guide and support and strengthen. Father, we pray for our country, even as we rejoice at its birth, even as we give thanks for the freedoms and the prosperity we enjoy. We do give thanks. We do celebrate. And we do, O oh Lord, pray that you would bless our nation. Father, I pray that you would bring it to repentance. I pray that you would give us leaders whom we don't deserve, that are full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, full of humility, full of grace, that would lead us in the way of righteousness as a people. And, O oh Lord, even now as we turn toward your table, sanctify, strengthen your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.